Hebrews chapter 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Liam. Let's move that out of the way. So it'd be good if you could have your Bibles open in front of you. Um, I often say this when I'm stood at the front. Uh, it's good to have your Bibles open because then you can check what I'm saying is true. Uh, and then you can challenge me on it afterwards. I hope it will be true, but it is good for you to be reading it alongside and looking at what I'm saying so that you can think yourselves, is this true? And you can come back and challenge me or talk about it amongst yourselves. So Hebrews chapter 13. We've uh, been spending the last five months or so, haven't we, looking through uh, the book of Hebrews. And we're coming towards the end uh, of our study. Uh, we started back in January uh, looking at our verse for the year in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. And we've been, say, working through the whole book uh, since then. But this evening we come to chapter 13, obviously towards the end of this, uh, of this written account. Uh, I don't know if you got the sense as, as you were reading it, it's quite a breathless list, isn't it? It's quite, um, it kind of jumps from one thing to the next quite quickly. He doesn't really develop any of his points. Uh, there's quite a lot of things he wants us to think about, to consider, and to take away, uh, perhaps as we're reading the letter. They say, I don't know if you've heard this, but all, all sermons should perhaps give the listener something to go away and do something to practically uh, do and to put into practice in their lives from day to day. And if that's the case, which I think it is, then there's certainly plenty here, isn't there, for us to get our teeth into. Something to, uh, lots of things that we can practically go away and do. We, we, we like that sometimes. But of course, the reason why sermons have application, the reason why we kind of want to apply it, is because uh, we, we, we want to challenge, don't we? We want something to go away and do, because so often uh, we don't, put our faith into practice as we should. 
but we need to hear something and we need, to, in a sense, to be told, not to be told, but to go away and do something about it. Like a lot of things, our faith is like um, you know, something mechanical, like a, a car or a bike or, or something like that. If we don't use it, it'll seize up, it'll cease to be as efficient as it could be. And the writer to the Hebrews wants us to think about these things so that our faith is alive, so that our faith is vibrant, so that our faith will not become underused. Because if our faith is not used, it will not be as good as it could be or as good as it should be. It needs to be alive and active and vibrant. But before we jump into chapter 13, I just want to spend a few moments just kind of recapping on the book of Hebrews. Um, won't take me too long, I promise. Uh, but just to kind of see where the writer of the Hebrews has got to, to bring us to this point in chapter 13. So Hebrews was written to a first century group of Christians who uh, were in danger of giving up on their faith. Times were hard. Uh, they'd faced persecution. They'd faced verbal and physical attacks. Their homes had been plundered. Some had been thrown into prison because of their faith. Just turn back with me to chapter 10, uh, just a couple of pages back, uh, to verses 35, sorry, verses uh, 32 through 35. This kind of gives us a sense of what was going on. It says, remember those earlier days after you have received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. So just a sense there of what they were going through. They were being persecuted. But while some had accepted this persecution with joy, others had begun to shrink back from their commitment uh, to God. They'd begun to compromise. They'd begun to change what they thought. So therefore, the writer of the Hebrews is unequivocal in his challenge to say, hold on tight. Your faith is important. Make sure your faith is anchored firmly to Christ Jesus. But how? How are they going to do that? In the midst of everything they've been through, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of everything they knew being taken away from them, how are they going to keep their faith alive and vibrant when practically they have, they have nothing? Well, as any good, teacher, uh, good Bible teacher should, he does this by uh, turning his reader's eyes not to themselves, not to kind of look inward and kind of look for some inner strength to kind of you know, well up inside them, and not, not to look to their struggles, not to go, woe is me, however real their struggles indeed may be, but to make them look up to Christ. Not to look down, but to look up. He says, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, he says, your faith cannot cope with adversity unless Jesus fills your horizon, unless Jesus is everything in your experience. So he calls for them to endure. He calls for them to not give up, to look to Jesus, as our verse for the year says, to be the, well, it says the pioneer in the NIV, but the, the author, he is the one who writes your faith, and he is the one who perfects your faith. So that's been kind of the message of Hebrews up to this point. So as we come to chapter 13 then, the writer wants to tell us what the reader's faith should look like and how their lives should be if indeed this faith is alive and is vibrant in their lives. So I was trying to think of a um, kind of a catchy title and I couldn't really come up with one. So I've just gone for practical Christianity or practical Christian living. That is the message of Hebrews at chapter 13 here. He wants us to challenge us with, with six things. I know it's six, that sounds a lot. And I'll try and be 
as quick as I reasonably can. But I think the passage points us to six things uh, that will characterize our lives as Christians if our faith is alive and our faith is vibrant. So first of all, he calls us to be loving. I think we'd all agree, wouldn't we, that love is an essential part of the Christian community, part of the Christian character. Whether we find loving others easy or not, this is a characteristic, I think, that we must display. Just to be clear, that the word love he uses here is not the agape love that Christ had for us, his, his life-giving love, uh, but um, I had a little chuckle when I read this. It, it's a Philadelphia love. It's not a, it's not a soft cheese love, uh, but it's a, it's a brotherly love. If I was to ask you to turn to the person next to you and say that you love them, how easy would that be? Well, perhaps for some of you that would be very easy, but if you don't know them, turning to them and saying, I love you. Oh, you're doing it. Well done. Very nice. Very nice. I wasn't expecting you to do it. I thought you'd be all British and reserved. Um, But love, love uh, between Christians is a key starting point uh, for, for us as Christians, in a sense, for them to show to anybody else. In referring to it as brotherly love, it kind of gives this sense, doesn't it, of a, of a family love, of a kind of an unbreakable bond that we have as a family. Um, you know, I'm sure some families hate each other, but there is an underlying love, isn't there? An underlying bond, an underlying you know, link that brings them all together. And so the challenge, in a sense, for the church is, is clear off the back of talking about brotherly love. Do we have this brotherly love for one another in the church, whether you know them or not? Because if we don't show love to one another in the church, how can we possibly be expected to show love to people out there? Because love's not just about words, is it? Love's not just about saying to somebody, I love you. It's about actions. It's about doing something with it. I can tell Liz, my wife, all day long that I love her. But if my actions are contrary to that, if I go around doing all sorts of things that are contrary to the marriage vows that I took, well, my words are empty. My words are hollow. If I, you know, buy her flowers and uh, you know, buy her chocolates and uh, that sort of thing, my, my, which I do, um, my love has a practical action to it, doesn't it? My words cease to be as hollow as perhaps they sometimes can be. Love shows its reality by what we do with it. And it was this sort of love, this brotherly love, this family love that characterised the early church. You can read about it in Acts if you want to. They met together, they pulled their resources they shared what they had for the greater good. They, they drew themselves together as a family of God and they shared this Philadelphia, this brotherly love. And that's why we're called to show kindness, to show hospitality, to show practical goodness of those who are not in this church, but those who are out there because our love has a practical element. Love should overflow from what we say into what we do. And when we do that, again, if you just flick across to Matthew 25, again, quite a famous uh, uh, chapter, uh, Matthew 25, verse 35 to 40. Again, familiar words. It says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. So when we do things for other people, we are, in a sense, showing love 
to Jesus. We are reflecting Jesus' love, the love that he would have had for these people. We are showing Jesus to them. We reflect Jesus' loving character to other people. So we can show love. And again, there's another little bit of it as well, which I'll just touch on briefly. He, he talks about people in prison. Now, for us, this perhaps isn't, I'm not going to say it's not relevant. I, I don't mean like that. It, to the right of the Hebrews, this would have made perfect sense. You know, go and visit people in prison because, as we said, people have been thrown into prison for their faith. People have been uh, martyred for their faith. So when the writer of the Hebrews says, go and visit them, that's a very practical thing, thing for them to do. But you might say, well, I don't know anybody that's in prison. I don't know anybody that's suffering for their faith. Well, maybe not, but we're part of a worldwide church that does. We're part of a worldwide church that is suffering, that is being thrown into prison uh, for their practical showing of love. It's almost as if he's saying, you need to share in their pain. You need to share in their suffering. When you go and see them, tell them that you are almost suffering with them because they have suffered for Christ. So you should suffer alongside them. And so the reason we show love to one another in the church, again, is so that we can reflect Jesus' love to those outside, to those outside the church, to those who are suffering. Because in doing so, we are reflecting that love that has first been shown to us. So, practical Christian living point one, be loving. Point two, he says, is to be pure in verse four. The second defining characteristic is to be pure. And I'm sure we'd all agree uh, with the sentiments that uh, adulterous behaviour and sexually immoral behaviour has no place for the Christian. Yet sexual sin remains a key battleground for the church, doesn't it? Whether you are young, whether you are old, whether you're middle-aged, whether you're a teenager, male or female, this is an issue that will affect us all to a greater or lesser degree. And the two phrases that the writer uses, in a sense, therefore, is, uh, is inclusive. He uses uh, adultery and sexual immorality. And in a sense, they're both sides of the same coin, but obviously to be adulterous means to have sex outside of the marriage, and to be sexually immoral is to, is to not be married and have sex outside of the marriage bond. It covers everything, doesn't it? I think we all fit into one of those categories. So our purity should stand out as a defining feature of our practical Christian living. Because marriage was given by God to reflect the relationship that he has with the church. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Which is why he calls for the marriage bed to be kept pure, for marriage to be honoured. Because marriage reflects Christ and his church. Yet sometimes we, we celebrated the, the marriage yesterday, didn't we? But the reality of marriage is that, I was trying to look for some statistics, but about 40%, they say, of marriages end in divorce. In a sense, that's a, that's a very poor picture that our nation represents of church and the relationship that Christ has with his church. But that's why he says it is to be important, because marriage reflects Christ and his relationship to the church, which is why we need to be pure. So, practical Christian living, point two, be pure. Point number three, he says, be content. I have to be honest, this is an area where I really, really struggle, to be content, to be content with what I have. I can spend a ridiculous amount of time uh, on Autotrader or reading the latest uh, bike reviews, thinking that the next thing that I buy for my bike or for my car will bring me enduring 
and everlasting happiness. And to be honest, when I bought my new bike, it's brought me loads of pleasure. I love riding it. The problem is, is that it's not long before we start thinking, I could have something a little bit better. I could buy this new bit and it will make it just that little bit better. I could buy a new bike that would just be a little bit better than the previous one. We're never satisfied for long. Of course, it's not wrong to like these things. Of course, it's not wrong for me to like my bike. It's not wrong for you to like your hobbies and the things that you do. It's good to have hobbies and activities, dare I say, that take us away from the church, that can enable us to switch off, to give us relaxation and enjoyment. Those things are important. But the writer of the Hebrews reminds us that actually focusing on these things as the be-all and end-all can actually lead us away from God, which is why he calls for us to be content. The writer of the Hebrews and Timothy as well, of course, a famous verse, he says, the love of money is the root of all evil. So we must take the warnings here seriously. But I suppose we can just replace money with any word we like that could get in the way of our relationship with God, our career, cars, bikes, sex, I don't know what it is. But all these things can get in the way of our relationships, our relationship with God. But as Christians, our faith in God believes that he will provide everything that we need when we need it. A craving for more money, a better career, new stuff, new experiences, new anything can, if we're not careful, become our focus over and above our contentment in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews wants to awaken us to this danger. And in doing so, he gives us two Old Testament verses as to why we can and indeed should be satisfied with what we have, be that a lot or be that very little. And he quotes two Old Testament verses. Verse, in verse 5, he says, uh, Never will I leave you nor forsake you. The literal translation says, I will never, ever leave you, nor will I never, never, never forsake you. And verse 6, he says, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can me immortals, what can man do to me? And of course, these verses would have spoken very clearly to the persecuted uh, Christians of the time. But what he is saying is, if the Lord is on your side, if the King of heaven who came down to earth to live a perfect life is on your side, regardless of what is happening in your life, regardless of the situation you find yourself in, you can be assured that God is on your side, that God has not forgotten you. And because these verses are true, we can be confident in God's promise that our salvation is real, that our relationship with him is eternal. I read a quote from uh, the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon as I was preparing, and it says this, it says, listen to the voice of the Lord speak. I will help you. Is it a small thing for me, your God, to help you? Consider what I've already done. What? Not help you? I brought you with my blood. What? Not help you? I died for you. Since I've done the greater, will I not do the lesser things for you. It's hard to be content, isn't it, sometimes? It is hard not to be uh, thinking about the next thing. But the writer of the Hebrews wants to remind us that in Christ we have everything we need. We lack nothing. So we need to be content with what we have. So, practical Christian living point number three. Be content. Point number four, he says, be imitators. The next few verses, he covers quite a lot of stuff, and I'm not going to touch on it all. Uh, but what he's saying here is we need to be imitators of other people and two specific groups of people he, he touches on. 
We, he says he wants us to copy what other people do, to look to the examples of people around us, to look to the leaders of, of the church, to look to leaders, as he was referring to them in Hebrews, of an example as to how to stay true to the truths they have been given. Look closely at them. Look at how they live their lives. The writer encourages, imitate them, do what they did. And so, as a warden in the church, when I read that, I was quite uncomfortable because I had to look at myself and say, am I, am I an example that people can copy? Am I an example of a Christian that people want to follow? Am I a Christian when somebody, somebody looks at me, they see Jesus Christ shining through me? Am I an example of integrity, of sacrifice, and of faith? And I didn't like the answer that I came up with because no, I'm not. I cannot claim to be like the leaders that the writer of the Hebrews is describing. But in one sense, whether you are a leader in the church or not, you are a leader in some senses. People will look at you, whether you're a leader of YF, whether you're a leader in Sunday school, whether you lead amongst your peers. People will look at you. People will see you. People will see what you do. You are to bear witness to the truth of verse 8, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in a world that changes constantly, where fads and fashions and truth seems to change. Um, what is new today uh, is old tomorrow. We're called to follow Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We must be imitators of Christ first, and then we must follow... Uh, and we, so, sorry. Uh, we must be imitators of Christ, and then as we follow our church leaders, we will see, hopefully see in them uh, them imitating Christ as well. So practical Christian living point number four, we must be imitators of those around us. Point number five is to be bold. It's not bold with no hair, but it's to be bold to go where other people don't go. This boldness is set, of course, naturally in the context of Jesus' death and resurrection. We must go beyond the safety of the gates. He refers to the city gates in, this, in these verses. We must go beyond the safety of the city gates. We must go beyond the safety of these four walls. It's very easy to be bold in here, isn't it? It's very easy to be a Christian in here because we're protected by people who believe the same things as us. Out there, we're not protected in the same way, are we? We're not protected by these four walls. We're not protected, protected by others who agree and uh, kind of um, say the same things as us. Jesus, of course, tells the famous parable of the lost sheep where he went and found the one that was lost. You know, if he'd perhaps followed the example of the church, he'd never have gone and looked for that one sheep. He'd have just let it die. But he went and searched out that sheep. And are we like that shepherd, going beyond these walls out into the community out there? If you're of a certain age, you'll no doubt remember the song that has a slightly naff tune, but called Be Bold, Be Strong, for the Lord your God is with you. I'm not going to sing it. Um, it says, I am not afraid. Be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. And we can go with confidence because we know that our hope is not in the here and now. We have this enduring city uh, that we are looking for, that we are looking forward to. And uh, we can be bold because our hope is based not on the here and now, it is based on the truth of a heavenly home. 
So practical Christian living, point number five, be bold. And point number six, he calls us to be worshippers or to be worshipful. And he picks up on four points very briefly. And, I'm just gonna, and a lot of them kind of cover what we've already touched on. So I'm just going to skip over them fairly quickly. Uh, but in verses 15 and 16, he just, he just rattles through four things uh, that we can do that, that kind of show our worship. Worship, of course, is not limited to singing as we have done this evening. It's, it's a response of our whole lives. Our worship is not who we are on a Sunday, uh, but who we are when nobody is watching us. So briefly, here are just four very brief things that we can do to show our practical Christian living, to show that we are true worshippers. A sacrifice of thankful praise. We have so much to be thankful for. He's already rattled through loads of things in these verses. Uh, We can be thankful for for brotherly love in the church. We can be thankful for generous hospitality that we've received, for the love and compassion we've received when we've been in trouble, for those who've shown us an example in marriage, for meeting our material needs, for the care that God provides. The list goes on and on. Are we those who are thankful for the things that we have? Are we thankful every day for the good gifts that God has given us? We need a sacrifice of thankful praise. Do we have a sacrifice of unashamed witness? If our lives reflect our hearts, then we should be bold in our witness, shouldn't we? If we are thankful for what Jesus has done and we understand what Jesus has done, we should, as we've already said, be bold. And this boldness should overflow from our lips. In a society that is generally ignorant of God and ignorant of God's truths, the fruit of our lips, what we say to other people, can reflect this love that we have. Because as verse 8 reminds us, Jesus is the same. His message doesn't change. There are not new rules every day on what we need to say. The the death of Christ remains as relevant now as it was 2,000 years ago. So go and be witnesses. Thirdly, the sacrifice of compassionate service. Do good to other people. Show kindness. Again, it's a response to our faith, isn't it? That we go and help and do good to other people. Do good. Cut their lawns. Wash their car. Cook a meal for them. Fix their car. Buy them a car. I don't know what it is. Whether they are Christians or not, serve them in love. Serve them because you have been served by Jesus, because Jesus loves, uh, because you love Jesus. You remember those bands from a while ago? What would Jesus do? He'd have probably gone and cut that person's lawn, wouldn't he? Go and reflect Jesus in what you do. And finally, the sacrifice of generous giving. In doing good for others, in being compassionate, we're being generous. And our giving is a vitally important part. Our financial giving, of course, is a vitally important part of our worship. I'm not going to go into the finer points of that now. But we must give generously, be that of our time, of our skills, of our energy. We must give generously to the kingdom. So, practical Christian living point number six, be worshipful. So as I say, the writer of the Hebrews has covered a lot of ground. He's kind of given us a lot of stuff to go away and think about. Being part of the body of Christ, our lives must reflect and show people people Jesus through our actions and through our words. And there is a clear practical response to our faith. The problem was, though, when I was preparing, I was, in a sense, if not disheartened, but I kind of thought, how on earth am I supposed to do this? There's so much he wants me to do. 
how on earth am I going to live up to this? How am I going to live a life? How am I going to live this practical Christian life when he's asking so much of me? And he does demand a lot, and and legitimately so. But I thought, practical Christian living? No, more like impractical Christian living. One of the themes of Hebrews has been about keeping going when the going gets tough, about looking to Jesus, knowing that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he never lets you down. So the challenge that I thought as I was preparing was, well, what do we do? What do we do when we haven't shown the love to others as we should have done? What do we do when our thoughts aren't as pure as they should be? What happens when we're not content with what we have, when we constantly strive for more and more stuff? When we do not imitate Christ as we should, when our reflection of him is distorted? What do we do when we're not bold in our proclamation of the message? What do we do when our worship is stale and frankly, not particularly worshipful? Well, I'm jumping ahead a little bit and I'm stealing a little bit of uh, next week, but verses 20 and 21 give us great encouragement in the midst of all this. For they say, May the God of peace, through, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that the great shepherd of the, of the sheep equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Once we were dead, but we've been given a new life because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And because of his great love, it says we have been equipped to do these things. He's given us all that we need to live this practical Christian life. It's amazing, isn't it? God has given you all that you need. So why is it still hard then? Why is it still so difficult? Well, I touched on it at the start. Maybe it's sometimes we don't practice these things. Maybe we don't put them into practice as we should. Just like a sportsman develops his skills, just like a bike rider will train, just like a footballer will practice his free kicks. If it's not used, if a machine is not used, if you do not use your faith, it will seize up. It will cease to be as good as it could be. Sometimes we, we, kind of, we, we want to keep it all spiritual and kind of put away the practical, don't we? We think that it should all depend on God and have nothing to do with me. Well, friends, it does depend on you. We sometimes need to be very deliberate to show love, to be pure, to be content, and all these other things, to be worshipful. I always remember something I heard uh, a little while ago now. And every time we kind of talk about practical Christian things, it it comes back to me. We need to partner with God. God has promised to be with us in all that we do. It's just sometimes we need to take that first step. We need to be the ones that go out there and make that first step to be bold witnesses, for example. We need to show that love because when we do, when we go, God will come alongside. He will witness with us. He will be alongside us. Practical Christian living can be hard. So as, as people pray and encourage one another in it, because we're all in the same boat, aren't we? I meet as regularly as I can with three other guys, and, and we kind of work out what practical Christian living means for us in our lives. We pray for each other. We share our successes. We share our failures. We share our struggles. We read together and we discuss and we try to sharpen our thoughts so that we might be better out there 
and think about how we, how we as men can reflect Christ better. Do we always get it right? No, absolutely not. We don't, rarely we get it right, but we're learning how to do it better and we're trying our very best to be practical Christian men. It's a big calling to do it well, isn't it? Practical Christian living. But in Christ and with Christ, we can. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the example that you first set for us. Lord, as we've read these things this evening, we may feel discouraged. I pray that we would be encouraged by the fact that you walk alongside us, that you walk with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. And because you will never leave us or forsake us, what can man do? What's the worst that man can throw at us? Because we have an eternal city. We have an eternal hope. We have a Christ and a Saviour who came down to rescue us first. And as we walk with him, as we, um, as we worship him, we reflect Christ to other people. That may seem strange that we, sinful human beings, could reflect the God of the universe, could reflect our Saviour, yet that is what the Word tells us. So I pray that you'll help us in our practical Christian living. Lord, that you would help us to walk with you, to know you more closely, to walk with you um, every step of the way. And uh, Lord, we just give you thanks and praise for all your goodnesses in your name. Amen.